0: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
1: And I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: Well, Margaret, the president has released his budget proposal for the upcoming year. The Trump budget plan cuts about 18% from the Department of Health and Human Services. That would mean significant cuts to departments such as the National Institute of Health, which could see cuts by as much as $6 billion. That would put a tremendous amount of research in serious jeopardy. Mm.
1: Well, Mark, the president reportedly feels that this will force the NIH to focus on research with the highest priority. And as we all know, much uh, research is years and even decades in the making. Such cuts could seriously diminish the country's reputation as the world's leader in scientific research and medical breakthroughs and really uh, put developing and new researchers at risk.
0: The budget also places a number of social programs at risk, school nutrition programs, and the popular Meals on Wheels for seniors. Studies have shown that bolstering childhood nutrition for those at risk support school performance. As for the nation's elderly, the meal delivery program serves two important functions. It keeps them healthier longer, also provides much-needed social interaction which supports health and well-being for the most vulnerable seniors.
1: Well, the president's budget proposal comes on the heels of the Republican plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And the American Health Care Act, as it's been titled, is expected to result in 24 million Americans losing health coverage within a couple of years. And that is not sitting well with a number of constituencies throughout the country, Mark.
0: You're absolutely right. But among those that this new initiative is not sitting well with, include the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, and the American College of Pediatrics, just to name a few, but there are also many more.
1: And several organizations representing America's hospitals also have registered their concerns, and that includes the Federation of American Hospitals.
0: Which leads us to our guest today, Margaret. Chip Kahn is a longtime health strategist in Washington and is CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals. Many of the nation's hospitals have benefited under the Affordable Care Act, which led to 20 million people gaining coverage. It greatly reduced the burden of uncompensated care, a big problem for hospitals. Looking forward to hearing his views, Margaret.
1: We are. And Delori Robertson will stop by, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She remains on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, remember, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Chip khan in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm
2: Marianne O'Hare with these Healthcare Headlines. The White House is out with its own analysis of the Republican health care bill, and the predictions are even more severe than the bipartisan Congressional Budget Office assessment of the American Health Care Act. The White House projecting the law could lead to 26 million Americans losing coverage versus the CBO projections of 24 million. Meanwhile, there have been high-level meetings underway for the past week in efforts to tweak the bill to make it more likely to pass the Senate. After going through the House, Republican leadership, including President Trump, Speaker Ryan, and others, looking at alterations to the bill that would give more assistance to seniors in the form of tax credits and install a work requirement for those receiving health coverage under Medicaid. Under the current configuration of the Health Care Act, older Americans up to age 65 are facing premiums and health care costs five times as high as younger, healthier people, and the poor would not fare well at all, especially those who gain coverage under the Medicaid expansion from levels they received under the Obama health reform. And while this debate is centered largely around the leaders of the Republican majority as well as the Trump White House, there has been some input of note from a former champion of the Affordable Care Act who worked in the Obama White House. Dr. Zeke Emanuel has been meeting with the Trump team. Emanuel discussing tweaks the administration could recommend to fix what needs fixing in the existing law. And much ado about MACRA. With cuts to Medicaid and almost certainty under the new administration, there are many unanswered questions from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid under the current leadership as well. And clinicians are awaiting instructions on next moves for MACRA. That's the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act passed in 2015, which essentially creates new ways to pay clinicians for treating Medicare recipients. Clinicians who improve outcomes metrics in a number of areas will be compensated accordingly. But there are many unanswered questions as to how. Many clinicians uncertain what exemptions they will qualify for under the new payment system. And shades of the opioid epidemic, which has led to the deaths of some 50,000 Americans last year and is the leading cause of accidental deaths now in this country. Number of cases of children taking potentially lethal amounts of these drugs has also skyrocketed between 2000 and 2015. Poison control centers in the US received almost 200,000 calls about prescription opioid exposures in children and teens. That translates into roughly 11,700 calls per year, putting all those young people's lives at risk. Amariano Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Charles N. Kahn, President and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals, a national advocacy organization representing 20% of the nation investor-owned hospitals. He serves on the National Quality Forum's Measure Application Partnership Coordinating Committee, was principal of the Hospital Quality Alliance, and served as commissioner of the American Health Information Community, serving then HHS Secretary Michael Levitt. He was staff director for health on the House Ways and Means Committee, Helping shape the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, better known as HIPAA. He has earned many accolades in his career, including being named to Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential List every year, as well as Becker's Hospital Review 50 Most Powerful People in Healthcare. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree at Johns Hopkins University and his Master's in Public Health from Tulane. Mr. Khan, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Uh, nice to be here.
0: Yeah, and Chip, you've had a great career in health policy development, and I think you have an interesting perch uh, over many years to watch health policy and reform evolve. And uh, I think it's fair to say the most dramatic transformation happened with the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, we have a, a new sheriff in town, President Trump, and a whole new approach to health policy with the GOP-authored American Health Care Act. There are quite a few observers who have expressed concern, and it's potential for disruption to health coverage in the health industry. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners and lay out this critical transition in what you believe to be at risk for the healthcare industry.
3: Well, I guess someone from Johns Hopkins a few years ago about foreign policy wrote a book or a paper called The End of History. And uh I think some might have thought that the passage and the implementation of ACA was sort of the end of history for healthcare policymaking. And uh, I guess we found out it wasn't. <laughs> uh, and uh, the other team came into town with the election of President Trump and the Republicans controlling both chambers of Congress, and uh, they're going to make big changes. And I-, I don't want to be negative, but they do have in fact a different agenda and the speaker of the house has said this
0: you know many
3: times and that that he's interested in reducing healthcare costs and isn't as interested in coverage and so i think that the theme uh, and approach is going to change i mean when the congressional budget office came out with an estimate of the coverage loss the other day the speaker who is really spearheading the legislative process here said that It was a great projection estimate because it showed that uh, his effort was going to reduce the deficit and was going to enable the reduction of health care costs and and of taxes at the same time, and turn the health insurance market around with lower premiums. So I, I think it's just a different set of priorities that we now face than we did Back in 2009, with the beginning of uh, President Obama's term.
1: Well, Chip, your organization, the Federation of American Hospitals, represents over a thousand hospitals across the United States, and I understand uh, many of the hospitals have have seen better bottom lines in the wake of 20 million consumers gaining health coverage, which have course, means uh, the burden of providing uncompensated care for the uninsured is reduced. But the Congressional Budget Office predicts that the American Health Care Act could actually lead to 24 million Americans losing coverage. Could you talk about your outreach to Congress and to the Trump administration? I understand your organization uh, sent a letter urging them not to undermine the level of coverage Americans now have or to try and fix the federal budget by cutting Medicaid. What, what are you hoping to see happen next?
3: Well, first let me say, you know, I do have a lot of respect for the Congressional Budget Office. I think if you look into the weeds of the of the estimate that it probably overstates the near-term effect,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, long-term, I suspect that it's probably more correct if their policies go into effect. You know, we have pretty grave concerns about the proposal, and, and I think there are some people in the Senate who take quite a different view of what the priority ought to be, Um, I'm hoping that uh, the winds will change. And at least there'll be more of a focus on the transition and making sure that we lose as little ground as possible on the coverage. Uh, Hospitals are generally speaking out about this, but frankly, in the current environment, I'm, I'm not sure that the provider, clinician, community is the constituency that is, is being addressed directly. Uh, the insurers and the governors uh, seem to have more leverage right now.
0: Huh. You know, I'd like to talk a little bit about the process. You obviously had uh, a great deal of experience in the development of the Health Information Portability and Accessibility Act, uh, known as HIPAA. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you sort of think about that, what your advice might be to Congress on how to move forward This is something that is going to take lots of time and lots of effort. Any advice on how they maneuver past this big event that's going to happen getting through the Senate as well?
3: Well, you know, the context for every legislative process is different. Mm -hmm. And the constituencies vary so much. You know, I wish the current process was being approached in a different way. I think it is probably going to come out with a product that will not provide the kind of coverage that Americans need so that we can really put the patient first. And really the relationship of all the patients to the healthcare care system um, sort of starts with you're better off if you have coverage. We know that from so many different mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, all that being said, I would not have approached it the way they approached it, but You know, I'm not working up there right now. And um, I think this process is is taking the the route it's taking because of the last election. And then how the public interprets what they finally decide if they're able to come to some conclusion. You know, health tends to be, you know, everybody looks at the economy, but, you know, over the last many, many cycles, uh, when major health legislation is uh, undertaken, it it tends to have a big influence on the, the next election.
1: Well, Chip, back in the 1990s when you were executive uh, VP of the Health Insurance Association of America, I understand you presided over a very successful and effective campaign, the Harry and Louise campaign, which was aimed at blocking passage of then-President Bill Clinton's health reform plan. So I, I think you have learned some vital lessons about the importance of messaging when trying to communicate and, and sell something as complex as action on health care. When you look back at the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, what might the Obama administration have done to create a better messaging campaign?
3: Actually, in '93 and '94, we actually began the Harry and Louise campaign simply to get the attention of the administration and leaders in Congress so they would negotiate with us. Uh-huh. And it actually wasn't our purpose to bring down health reform. Our purpose was to make sure that the kind of insurance we felt was important to be available to people was available. You know, there's a lot of focus on what could have been different in terms of messaging from 2009, 2010. They got the legislation through. Not in a pretty way, but they got it through. So on the one hand, I'd say the President uh, Obama was successful. Then they really did a a subpar job in terms of the immediate uh, implementation. But actually, I think at the end of the day, action and products and outcomes are what the American people see. I mean, if they had not bungled uh, healthcare.gov, if they had been more successful, if the premiums had not gone up quite as much, if Congress had not been as uncooperative so that mid-course corrections that were needed couldn't have been made, we wouldn't be on the path where we are now. The launch was too faulty, and the political follow-up you know, it was insufficient.
0: We're speaking today with Charles N. Kahn, President and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals, a national advocacy organization representing 20% of the nation's investor-owned hospitals. He serves on the National Quality Forum's Measure Application Partnership Coordinating Committee and served as Commissioner of the American Health Information Community, which served then HHS Secretary Michael Levitt. Now, I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned that the governor's roles looms large in terms of this legislation of how it's being formed. Talk a little bit about Medicaid and the block granting back to the state. How much wind in that sail do you think there is in terms of uh, making this move back to deal with the wide disparities of governors on the Republican side? Do you think this is is something that we're going to see in the future of how Medicaid is going to be operated and funded?
3: Well, I think that there is a tremendous amount of momentum here for reforming Medicaid in the direction that the House bill has chosen. I think there may be changes in the Senate that would probably have to be some more accommodation for this transition from the current Medicaid program to the Medicaid program that's envisioned. But I think the objective in ACA was to make Medicaid a coverage program for low-income people. Obviously, it serves some other purposes for seniors and in terms of long-term care and the disabled. But I think they wanted to move it to a program that just was based on income and basically was a low-income health coverage program. I think if you look at the letter that uh, Seema Burma, the new CMS administrator and the Secretary of Health and Human Services Price sent to the governors, they are very clear there that they want to move Medicaid back to its pre-ACA roots where it really was a welfare program or, or more of a welfare program in terms of categorical eligibility and other factors. And that's where this, this work factor they, they would like to instill in it as well as giving the governors more latitude in terms of cost sharing of various kinds or premium sharing in terms of their viewing as, skin, quote, skin of the game you know, for the Medicaid recipients. So I think there's uh, a different conceptual base Mm -hmm. that they come from, and uh, they have the power either administratively through waiver and through this legislation to move Medicaid to a different place than it is right now.
1: Well, Chip, let's take a step back from the weeds of health reform for just a moment and, and talk about healthcare and take a look at the myriad advances that have occurred within the healthcare industry over the past decades. And we've certainly seen the hospital industry make very important changes to address the problems of medical errors. We've also seen great advancement in health IT, remote monitoring, uh, telehealth. All these things are impacting how hospital organizations are transforming the way they deliver care. Maybe you could uh, talk with us about some of the fundamental advances and improvements that you have seen to make hospitals safer, more efficient, uh, as well as more cost-aware as they adapt to uh, 21st century advances.
3: I think there are a number of trends. Um, First, back in the late 90s, the Institute of Medicine reports both on quality of care, and on hospital-acquired conditions um, had a big impact because hospitals are in the business of making people better, serving patients and mm-hmm. families. And um, I, I don't think there was a clear understanding, frankly, whether it was because of how the data was collected or other reasons, there wasn't a clear understanding of how large the problem was. And I think since then, hospitals... Government communities and, and researchers and those who provide the guidance, uh, to help us assure quality, you know, have, have all worked together and had an incredible impact so that today, whether it's central line infections or, uh, other kinds of areas for potential harm, hospitals are, have moved really mountains, uh, to make themselves safer. In most American hospitals today, you can't move 10 feet without a container to clean your hands. Mm-hmm. You know, there's signs everywhere. There's an awareness of even the simple stuff that can have such an impact. So that's been a big change. There is a trend of transforming the hospital from inpatient to outpatient. Uh, so every day, the science and the practice pushed partly by payment more and more activities are been pushed out of the hospital or out at least of inpatient services and i think in most cases that's been good for the patients it has though made the hospitals you know more concentrated uh for generally sicker patients and maybe that is the best use of those very expensive uh resources i think the adoption of electronic health records has been a mixed blessing I think it has it makes a a big difference for patient care it It has negatively affected i think workflow to some extent, and I don't think you know we're at the point where we have the ideal medical record. Um, it still is really just a, a digitalization of what what we used to have on paper right. and so there is great research going on with big data, uh, but in terms of keeping track of patients and applying metrics. Uh, from medical records for a measurement. We're still in the, sort of the awkward beginning of that, and these are not ideal mm-hmm. uh, instruments yet. But, I mean, I think we're on the right path, and uh, most things take longer than people think, and so I'm encouraged, you know, we're moving in the right direction.
0: You know, I want to pull the thread a little on that important role hospitals are playing in this growing movement towards health systems based on coordinated care, the growth of uh, the accountable care uh, organizations, and ultimately more value-based delivery model. And increasingly, we're seeing hospital organizations as the epicenter of community-based delivery systems. And that makes it tremendously relying on fostering partnerships across the spectrum of players within the health community. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our listeners about this fundamental shift in the hospital industry and forging these partnerships and your vision for evolving role of hospitals within the context of the larger health system.
3: Well, the Speaker of the House many years ago said that all politics is local. In some ways, all health care is local. And so – There is variation and it has a lot to do with demographics and, and, uh, history and social development, but there is variability across the country in terms of the kinds of healthcare systems communities have. Whether it's the effect in some communities of accountable care or managed care or the, the bundling, uh, that's now included both in Medicare and some Private contracting with third parties and healthcare insurers. I think we're moving to a place where there are attempts at more coordination, and I think that it's been more successful in some communities than others, and the nature of the communities and their structure will have an effect on that. But I think it is the future. Some of this will be virtual as we reach real interoperability of electronic health records, which still is to come. You know, as we consolidate between both group practices and hospitals, you know, some will be just as we get larger organizations. Um, at the end of the day, though, the tracking, the coordination, the data collection, the use of big data, the bringing uh, electronic health records, the the impact to help the patient, um, a lot of this requires capital and organization and structure. And I think either larger groups or and or with hospitals are going to be sort of the ground zero of most, most people's health care uh, into the future in a way that it wasn't necessarily in the past. I mean, if you were really sick, you went to the hospital. Otherwise, you were out in the community in a small group practice. I think that's all changing. And the demographics of physicians and clinicians are really changing that also.
0: We've
1: been speaking today with Charles N. Kahn, President and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals, a national advocacy organization representing over a 1,000 hospitals in both urban and rural settings across the United States. You can learn more about their work by going to FAH.org or follow them on Twitter. Chip, thank you so much for the work you do and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today.
0: Conversations on health care, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about health care reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Both Democrats and Republicans have been spinning the Congressional Budget Office's analysis of the Republican health care bill. This week, we'll look at the Democrats. Some have overstated what the nonpartisan CBO said about the impact on those who now have health insurance. For instance, Senator Bernie Sanders claimed that the GOP health care bill would, quote, throw 24 million Americans off of the health insurance that they currently have. Representatives Richard Neal and Frank Pallone, Jr., Similarly said, the bill, quote, would rip away health insurance from 24 million Americans over the next decade. But those claims go too far. The analysis by the CBO and Joint Committee on Taxation did say that 24 million fewer Americans would be insured under the American Health Care Act, But not all of them would have their insurance ripped away or would be losing insurance that they currently have. The numbers represent a complicated mix of some losing insurance, some deciding not to have it, others gaining it, and others not having insurance in the future that they would have had under current law. Let's look at some of the numbers. The CBO said $14 million more would be uninsured next year under the bill, most due to the elimination of the individual mandate, the requirement to have insurance or pay a tax. Some of those, CBO, CBO said, only had insurance under current law to avoid the penalties, so they would choose not to have it under the GOP bill. Older and low-income Americans on the non-group market, or individuals by their own insurance, could see substantially higher costs in future years under the Republican plan. Insurers would be allowed to charge older people more, and new age-based tax credits wouldn't be large enough to offset those premium increases. These factors mean that the makeup of the non-group market would be significantly different, CBO said, with a net $2 million fewer on non-group insurance by 2026. The biggest change is under Medicaid, with $14 million fewer with Medicaid coverage in 2026 under the GOP bill. Certainly, some of those could be described as having had their insurance taken away from them as the law changes the Medicaid expansion and program financing. But others among that $14 are would-be future enrollees that CBO projects would have been made eligible as a result of future state actions under current law, but they won't get such future eligibility under the GOP plan. For more on the breakdown of the CBO projections, see our website, factcheck.org. And that's my fact check for this week.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When longtime IBM executive Sharon Linder left the corporate world, she thought she would ease into semi-retirement, but then breast cancer diagnoses for her mother and two sisters shifted her focus. She watched as all three of them went through multiple surgeries and treatments, wearing the ubiquitous Johnny, the hospital gowns that tie in the back and leave patients often feeling vulnerable and exposed during a time when they are also scared and uncomfortable during their treatments. The hospital
5: gown was never meant to close in the back, it was meant to make it easy for you to go to. the john. And so when you put it in the front, it really doesn't close.
1: The former corporate executive decided that the one in eight women going through breast cancer treatment needed a power suit of their own to navigate this challenging experience. And she launched her own research project into which fabrics and which designs might provide a better alternative to the standard hospital gown, but one that would also be an easy addition to hospital laundering services.
5: We came up with a fabric that you know he would throw in the washer and dryer for like two weeks Nonstop. So the fabric we came up with is a, a waffle weave fabric, but it's a knit. So the feel of it is very much like a cotton cashmere that is just so soft, you just don't want to take it off.
1: She called her invention Jane's, as opposed to Johnny's, creating a gown that thousands of users have called comfortable, stylish, and a vast improvement from their predecessors.
5: And they fit people in a comforting way. It's, it, you know, you're totally covered. It's a little v-neck crossover at the very top. And it goes all around your body.
1: And she developed the gown in time for her own cancer diagnosis and was able to see her invention put to her own good use.
5: James did give me really a leg up. I think that I felt better about all of my treatments, just feeling like I looked better. When you think you look better, you feel better.
1: Dozens of hospital systems across the country are adopting her gown design, which you can also order online for women who've received a recent diagnosis of breast cancer, and even nursing mothers are using her product. Jane's, a hospital gown designed for enhancing the female patient experience, providing comfort, dignity, easier access during challenging procedures, or just providing an easier experience for newly breastfeeding mothers, Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.